Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Well, again, uh, good morning. It's uh, good to see each of you. Uh, It really is. I do want to uh, thank you for your prayers uh, for myself and the other hikers last week. I mentioned this a little bit during the announcements, but I wanted to wait because I know some of you don't quite show up right during the announcements <laughs> and are a little bit later. Uh, but I wanted to uh, just tell you just a little bit about the trek uh, since you've asked. We had a, a there were six of uh, seven of us, seven of us, <laughs> myself and six others, who uh, went hiking in Jasper National Park up in Canada. Had a wonderful, fabulous week up there in the Canadian wilderness. And for the most part, we had really great weather uh, if it wasn't uh, too warm. On uh, what was supposed to be our, our last night of the trek, uh, we, we camped on the peninsula where two rivers came together, the, the Rocky and the Restless. And we had a great little campsite there on the peninsula, had a wonderful time. Uh, but that night, uh, it rained. And not just a little rain, but the, the heavens opened up. And I'm, uh, I'm experienced enough to know that, that rain always sounds louder in a tent, right? It always sounds louder in your camper than it actually is. But this, this was coming down. Uh, the thunderstorms that, w- that went overhead lasted uh, all night long, probably six hours. And uh, we estimated we got somewhere in the neighborhood of three to four inches of rain. And overnight, the, the restless river went from uh, less than a knee-high crossing to a chest-high crossing. Uh, and it was rapid, it was dangerous, it was fast. And in fact, in the half an hour that it took us to break down camp that morning, uh, we actually watched the restless river rise six inches. <laughs> there was a log in there that we could see, and then all of a sudden, half an hour later, we couldn't see it. Uh, the river had risen that much that fast. And we tried in vain uh, to get across, even felling a tree to use it as a bridge. Um, it didn't quite work, and uh, we knew that we were not going to go across that river. Um, so we headed backwards, crossing the, the less swollen Rocky River, and we, we bushwhacked our way north along the Rocky, uh, following the flow of the river. And as we went that morning, it continued to rain on us. The temperature continued to drop, turning from rain to sleet. And we encountered a, a bog, a wet, swollen bog, um, before finding the, the Rocky River further on downstream. And, and by now, the Rocky River had, had swelled, expanding its banks, picking up speed. And again, we tried in vain to ford the river, tried to make a bridge, tried to find a low spot, slow places, all in vain. Uh, we were wet, we were cold, we were soaked from, from the bog up, from the rain down, and uh, we found some higher ground out of the bog. We set up a couple of tents, <laughs> and uh, so we were wet, cold, freezing, and actually uh, on the verge of hypothermia at this point in time. And so we ended up pressing the uh, SOS button <laughs> on one of the uh, GPS trackers that somebody had brought along. And because of the, the weather, the low clouds, it took the Calvary a while to arrive. <laughs> and they almost turned back. 
but they gave it one last effort finally getting through. Uh, the helicopter landed in the bog just below the high ground where we had set up, set up camp, and they, they briefly assessed us and discussed our options, what we could do, uh, that sort of thing. And they offered us a night in a warden cabin. Uh, down here in the States, we'd call them rangers, ranger cabin, warden cabin. Uh, but it was complete with uh, wood stoves uh, where we could get nice and warm and dry for the night. And so we, uh, we took them up on that offer. Uh, they uh, helicoptered us across the river. Uh, it was about three-quarters of a mile to where the, the warden cabin was from where we were. And as we did that, the pilot noted the, the river and how it had swelled and expanded. And he even confirmed that, yeah, there's no way that you guys are going to get across that in the next couple of days. Uh, so it was a good thing that we had the button and we made the right choice. But that afternoon, let's see, that would have been, I think, Friday all of this happened. Uh, we got the stove going and hung our gear, dried our gear, and very quickly we got the cabin probably up to about 95 degrees. <laughs> we played a lot of rounds of Uno together and had some supper. Uh, but that night as we were in the cabin, the temperature continued to drop and probably dropped to, uh, to around 30 degrees maybe even the 20s, uh, but we woke up and there was snow all around us on the mountains that next morning. We only had to hike up about 100 feet of elevation before we found the snow uh, where we were. Um, so, yeah, but we had a good breakfast that morning and hiked out. And So, again, thank you for all of your prayers uh, during that time. Uh, we definitely appreciated that. I uh, just wanted to give you that update and uh, let you know that we, again, are alive and are okay. <laughs> um, question for you this morning, and this isn't going to be a, uh, just a rhetorical question. I'm going to give you some time to interact with one another. If you could ask Jesus or if you could ask the Father just one question, what would it be? Here's another way to frame it or to think about it. If you could have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with Jesus over a cup of coffee, uh, what would you center the discussion around? And again, I, this isn't just going to be a rhetorical question here. I'm going to give you 37 seconds <laughs> to chat with uh, your, your spouse, the person sitting next to you, your neighbor. Uh, what would you talk to Jesus about? 37 seconds, ready, go. The clock back there doesn't have a second hand, so we're going to call that good. <laughs> there, there are a lot of things that we could ask Jesus about, aren't there? We could, we could talk with him about a cancer diagnosis or the death of a loved one. We could ask him why evil is permitted to reign even after he's conquered on the cross. We might inquire as to why certain atrocities in human history like the Holocaust or genocides under communist dictators were allowed to happen. These are all weighty, heavy issues, aren't they? And I can imagine we would have a pretty good conversation with Jesus about those things and then leave feeling probably enlightened and probably maybe even a bit foolish for posing those questions to begin with. In our scripture text for this morning, a man gets his chance for a conversation with Jesus and makes a very <laughs> petty demand. But Jesus used that man's question to teach an important lesson about the human heart and the dangers that are associated with coveting, with greed. 
If you have your Bibles, I invite you to find Luke chapter 12. We're going to be starting in verse 13, reading through verse 21. It can be found on page 818 of your pew Bible. But would you stand this morning as I read uh, Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse 13, reading in Jesus' name. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, this is your word. Your word is truth. Please sanctify us in that truth. Let the words of my mouth, the meditations of every heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Father, we pray that you would use this word to convict us of our our own greed, of our own covetousness, of our own unsatisfaction and uncontentment with life. Thank you for the blessings that you have provided. May we use those for your glory and for your good. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As I see it, there are, there are four scenes that make up this section in Luke chapter 12, and we're going to look at them kind of one by one this morning as we study this interaction and the, and the parable that came as a result. So first, a guy in the crowd makes a request of Jesus. But no, as I think about it, I think the word request is a little too polite for what this guy was after. I think the word demand captures more of what this guy came to Jesus with. He, the, the demand he makes in verse 13 is this, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. You see, this man had a, couple, a problem, well, a couple of them, but we'll, we'll get there uh, later on. The way he saw it, his major problem was that he wasn't getting a fair share of the inheritance. In Jesus' day, the, the eldest son would receive a, a double portion of the inheritance from the father. And the younger sons would have gotten far less And now we don't exactly know the ins and the outs of this guy's situation. And maybe his claim was legitimate and the elder brother was withholding the share that was due to him. Or maybe this guy was just trying to squeeze out more than he was due. And for for Jesus, for, for rabbis in that day, hearing this sort of a complaint wasn't foreign. Oftentimes, the the town's rabbis were called in to settle legal squabbles or family disputes like this. 
And so the man wagered that if he could get the import of, input of one of these great traveling rabbis of the day, he, he could go back to his brother armed with that endorsement. This is what Jesus said. He said to give me the inheritance. <laughs> Who knows, maybe the, the elder brother was standing right there with him as he interrupts Jesus and makes this brazen demand. But Jesus did not come to settle disputes like this. In verse 14, he responds, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? While God does care about these issues and his heart does break whenever there is injustice of any kind, that, that isn't quite the point. Uh, at this particular moment in time, solving this financial dispute wasn't Jesus' priority. He didn't come to settle petty disputes like this. Jesus didn't want to step over the authorities of the, of the local rabbis who were appointed to do such things, to take care of these things. He, he knew that there was already a, a system in place a, a set aside or set to dis- establish these things, settle these demands. The, the rabbis were perfectly capable of that, and Jesus trusted them for justice for this man. But more than that, Jesus had come to tackle bigger issues. He came to solve bigger problems. Later on in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 19, Jesus would declare that his mission is to seek and to save the lost. And one day, Jesus will come as an arbitrator and a judge, but an arbitrator, a mediator between God and man. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Jesus Christ gave his life as a ransom for you, dying on the cross in your place and on your behalf, taking your sin, your guilt, your shame, charging it to his account, bearing it, dying for it. And of course, three days later, rising victorious from death, from the devil, from hell. Death could not hold him. Death had no claim on him. And therefore, because he was the ransom, he can be our, as, as Paul said, our mediator between God and man, the go-between between us and God. That was Jesus' mission. That was what he came to earth for, not to settle petty disputes like, he was, like the man in verse 13 was trying to get him to do. Let's go on. Uh, In verse 15, uh, Jesus issues a a warning, not just to the man, but to everyone. And the warning in verse 15 is this. Jesus said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Take care. Be on your guard. Those are our military metaphors. A soldier who's assigned a portion of the night watch was to to diligently watch for any intruders who might try to overrun the camp or the fortress. Uh, This soldier's eyes were to be glued to the darkness of the night, keeping a watchful eye for any signs of of movement. And when the enemy did approach, it was his job to sound the alarm, to wake the rest of the army. And if a sentry fell asleep at his post, the consequences were grave, quite literally. The manual of military law says that a sentinel found asleep or drunk at his post while on active service would, if the character and circumstances of the 
offense were significantly grave, be liable to suffer death. And Jesus says that this is the way that we are act, to act towards greed. We are to be that sentry who is attentively watching for any signs of greed, of covetousness. And what is coveting? And again, maybe that Bible, the Bible that you're reading uses the word greed. Uh, the words mean the same thing, and already this morning I've used those words interchangeably. And if I do throughout the rest of the sermon, you can just interchange them. Greed, to covet, uh, means to wish for or to desire something or someone that you do not have a right to. The Greek word for greed, for covetousness, talks about a thirst for having more. Greed is an insatiable, in unquenchable thirst. It's like being thirsty and drinking salt water to try to quench your thirst. It only makes you more thirsty and want more. And earlier this morning, uh, Terry, you read an, an example from the Old Testament of somebody who was greedy, somebody who was coveting. Ahab was one of Israel's kings and, as it turns out, was one of their worst. And in the scripture lesson this morning, we met his wife Jezebel, who was, well, <laughs> to put it mildly, not a very uh, upstanding queen. <laughs> Ahab's neighbor Naboth had a vineyard next to the palace that Ahab coveted. Ahab tried to get Naboth to sell it to him or trade it to him, but Naboth did not want to part with it, uh, which made Ahab very, very grouchy. And <laughs> I chuckled because he you know, goes to his bed and he pouts like a little three-year-old, not getting what he wants. <laughs> and so Jezebel plots the downfall of, of Naboth, lines up false witnesses who accuse him of blaspheming the Lord, and Naboth, as a result, is, is killed uh, of this false testimony. And, and Ahab sweeps in, takes the vineyard. Ahab's covetousness led to the death of a good man, and the Lord wasn't pleased. And also in the Old Testament, coveting is prohibited by the ninth and 10th commandment. Exodus 20, 17 says this, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And this is far from being a tack-on commandment that rounds out the ten. Uh, really, the prohibition against coveting is, is probably, honestly, if we sit and think about it, one of the most convicting. Most of the commandments prohibit actions you can see, right? Theft, adultery, lying, murder, worshiping of other gods, so on and so forth. But the prohibitions against coveting really focus on matters of the heart, sins that you might not see on the outside. In the large catechism, Luther talks about the hiddenness of coveting, and he says this, he says, These last commandments, therefore, are not given for the cheaters in the eyes of the world. These are given for the most pious, those who want to be praised and want to be called honest and upright people. And you know, we might be tempted to look at these prohibitions against coveting against greed and sort of poo-poo them and think, you know, <laughs> when, I, when I covet somebody else's stuff, it's, it's not that bad. I'm not actually harming them. I'm not actually stealing what I'm coveting. I'm not hurting my neighbor by coveting his stuff. But covetousness, greed, it's a, it's a dangerous and it can be a deadly sin. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is, is talking about some of the serious dark problems that are plaguing that church there in Corinth. And if you remember uh, the believers who were gathered together in Corinth, uh, they had a lot of issues that they were working through. They were divided. Uh, they were believers who were suing one another. Uh, the church was rife with sexual immorality and they, they were actually bragging about how progressive they were, how, how woke they were to some of these particular immoralities. And so Paul has to get really serious with them and, and level with them. And in chapter 6 he says this, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he goes on to talk about some of these unrighteous who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. And it's easy to get through some of that list, right? And we can, yeah, you guys, you guys, these sins, those things, right? It's easy to do that. But, but he goes on and he says, uh, Nor thieves, nor the greedy nor drunkards, nor the revelers, nor the swindlers. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. In the middle of all of those really bad sins, what's listed? Greed, covetousness. Doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room for any of us. We're all tempted in that regard. We all are guilty and in need of redemption and restoration. We are all in need of a mediator and forgiveness. There's a there's another reason behind Jesus' warning against covetousness and greed. He says in the last part of verse 15, he says, For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Hmm. And this one kind of hits home, doesn't it? Life is not about the car you drive, the square footage of your home, the initials behind your name, the, the title on your office door, the, the girl that you date. Life is not about the boat that you own, the accomplishments of your kids, the number of people who follow you on TikTok, the type of phone you have in your pocket. Life is more than stuff. And oftentimes we, we try to use those things to fill the voids in our lives. We think that if we just have the right things, the right stuff, life will be satisfying. If we had her job, if I had his truck, if I had her complexion. But in the end, it all lets us down, doesn't it? The boat breaks down. You wreck your car. Somebody else gets the promotion. One of your TikTok posts last week was a flash in the pan, but now everybody's forgotten about it and moved on to the next thing. The phone that you long for becomes outdated. Your girlfriend breaks up with you for your friend. <laughs> the stuff we've used to try to fill the voids in our lives comes up lacking. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, Jesus says. So if life is, a, is, is about more than stuff, what is it about? Uh, Jesus tells us a parable of verses 16 through 20 that sort of answer that question. And I know I've read it, but I want to read it again. Look at verses 16 through 20. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. 
I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? This parable tells us of a farmer who had a, a bumper crop and suddenly has nowhere to store his, his grain. And this would be a great problem to have, wouldn't it, right? Um, so this, this farmer decides to tear down his current barns and bins and build new ones, bigger ones. And honestly, there, there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's important to note that in this parable, Jesus is not knocking hard work or, or prudence. He isn't condemning building grain bins or setting up 401ks at work or planning for retirement. That, that's not what Jesus is doing here in this parable. There are plenty of verses in Scripture that extol the virtues of hard work and planning for the future. I, I looked up a couple of them. Proverbs 13.22 says this, "...a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children." But the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Or Paul in 2 Thessalonians says this. He says, Even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Work Work quietly, work hard, earn your own living. Don't be idle or busy for the sake of being busy. Paul, Solomon, Jesus all praised hard work. It's wise, it's prudent to plan for your future, to work hard, to provide for your family. So again, being rich wasn't the, this rich man's problem. He wasn't in trouble because of his hard work or the fact that his harvest did well. He was in trouble because of his own self-centeredness. Did you catch all of those eyes and mys in the parable? I counted 12 eyes and mys in his self-talk there in those verses. I will do this. I will do that. My crops, my barns, my grains, my goods. This man's world revolved around himself. Somebody needed to tell this man that this world does not and did not revolve around him. And you know what? It doesn't revolve around you either. We can tend to forget that, right? We can get so uh, enamored in our own little world with our own problems that we forget that there are hundreds, thousands of people who are also going through hard times as well. The man in Jesus' parable was, was a self-centered man who forgot about God. Did you notice that? In all of his talk of his barns and his grains, his wealth and his future, he never once thanked God or acknowledged God, not once. His land produced abundantly, but he did not thank the one who caused the rain to fall or the sun to shine. And sadly, it's part of our fallen, sinful human nature to, to run to God only when things are going wrong. Sickness, poverty, trouble at work, crumbling relationships. During those times, we can pour out our heart to God, but when we're healthy, when we get a promotion, when everything seems to be going right, we just forget to acknowledge where those good things come from. We tend to thank our hard work or, or our own ingenuity. We forget to give thanks to the author of all good things. All good and perfect gifts come from above. And this is exactly what the man in this parable had done. Everything was going right, and he had forgotten God. And that's sort of the point 
of this parable. Verse 20 and 21, Jesus drives home the point. Look at these verses again. God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The point of this parable is that each one of us needs to be sure that our soul is right with the Lord. You see, the God whom the rich fool had forgotten about had not forgotten about the rich fool. That night, the rich fool learned how short life is. And the fact that life is short is a fact that we are reminded of at every funeral that we attend. As we watch the family grieve, as we listen to the pastor give a sermon, we hear the the eulogies, the obituary read. It it should cause us to take stock of our own life. Somebody once said that life is like a roll of toilet paper. It goes by quicker the closer to the end you get. (laughs) Life is short. And all too often we waste it on unuseless, idle things. And we often live in ignorance, forgetting that this morning's sunrise might be the last sunrise that we will see. We can get so wrapped up in, in seeking stuff, acquiring the next cool toy, filling our lives with things that we forget to look at the big picture. We get so bogged down in sometimes the little things too that it can be easy to forget God, to forget Jesus. We can forget the words of the gospel that tell us that Jesus died for us and loves us. In Psalm 39, David prayed this. He said, O Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days as a few hand breaths and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as mere breath. We need to be reminded like the rich man in Jesus' parable that life is short and that our days are fleeting. And instead of working to acquire stuff, Jesus tells us to be rich, rich towards God. This is the cure for self-centered living, being rich towards God. But what does that mean? A couple of different things. First, being rich towards God means to love God and to love your neighbor. Uh, the, the rich fool in this parable could have and should have extended financial blessings and, and benefits to, to the needy around him. Instead, he lived a very self-centered life. Being rich towards God means realizing that everything you have, everything you own, is a gift from him and that those gifts should be used properly. Imagine if we, uh, the church at large, properly used what God has given us for the benefit of our neighbors instead of just our own happiness. And secondly, and probably more importantly, being rich towards God's toward God means to have all the wealth that is found in God. And we're not talking about some name it and claim it theology, but the wealth that can be found in God consists of things that money cannot buy, pardon and peace and salvation, forgiveness, grace and mercy. Those are the true riches towards God. In Leo Tolstoy's famous short story, How Much Land Does a Man Need?, uh, Tolstoy sets out to answer that very question. How much land does a man need? How much stuff is enough? And the protagonist in the story is a guy by the name of Pahom, who's a peasant farmer who gradually, bit by bit, carves out a better life for himself and for his wife. 
His farm grows, and eventually he has servants working for him, but still he's, he's not satisfied. He wants more. And so he hears of a, of a great deal in a, in a far-off country, and the owners are, are, of this land are willing to sell off large chunks of land for, for pennies on the dollar, and Pahom can't resist he takes a journey to this far-off country, and there he meets these landowners, and they tell him he can purchase as much land as, as, he, as he wants for a fixed amount. The only requirement is that he must walk off the boundary of the property that he will purchase, returning to the starting spot before the sun goes down. So Pahom agrees to the deal. The next day at sunrise, he, he sets off with the owners watching him from the top of this hill. And at each turn that he makes, he, he digs a hole as a property marker. And well, lo and behold, Pahom's greed gets to be a little too much for him. As the sun begins to set, he's still a long way off from the starting hill where he began. Uh, and he, he thinks, this is plenty of land, but will God let me live on it? I have lost my life. I have lost my life. I shall never reach that spot. And in a race against time, he, he redoubles his pace. And, and just as the sun is setting, he climbs the hill. He reaches the starting spot, completing the circuit, acquiring all of the land, only to collapse dead from exhaustion. Thus, the tragic conclusion and the answer to Tolstoy's question, how much land does a man need? The last line of the story goes like this. His servant picked up the spade and dug a grave long enough for Paholm to lie in and buried him in it. Six feet from his head to his heels was all that he needed. <laughs> what a tragedy. What a tragedy. So many people today are just like Paholm, living only for the here and now and ending up with empty lives. Enough is never enough, more, bigger, better, just a little here, a little there, but it's never enough to satisfy. Your life will never be made by complete and whole by what you own or by what you do. Life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Instead, Jesus says, be rich towards God. Seek the wealth of his pardoning, his peace, his salvation. Seek first his kingdom because he delights in giving it to you. Amen. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you for the reminder from your word today that, that life is short and that we don't know how much time you have given us on this earth. We pray that we would be able to take each day, each moment, and live it as if it is our last. May we not be stingy or miserly with the things that you have given us, but may we freely share those with others, Father God, and help us to find our contentment, our fulfillment in you and in what you have given us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.